Well, thank you so, so much, and have your Bibles open to Isaiah chapter 61. And if you take all those things out of a dessert, all you have is sugar. So just go buy 45 bags of sugar, just stick them on a table with a spoon. <laughs> That's all that's going to be left. Hey, I just want to say the best thing about uh, my coaching relationship with Sissy since she outed me there is the friendship that I'm building with her and the respect that I have for her. So good job, sister friend. You're doing a great job. And happy birthday to Kathy. She just got so many kisses today from little kids. And uh, happy birthday, honey. I love, that's her grandma name, honey. So it's so great. So uh, let's pray together before we start. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the opportunity to be with my IBC sisters. Thank you that this place feels like home to me. And over the years, I've had the honor and privilege of stepping on this stage and interacting with these beautiful sisters here. Bless the work of their hands. Take that $8,000, God, and even stretch it further than we can even imagine to transform the lives of little girls. And uh, we love you, Lord, and we're so thankful that Jesus preached this passage before I did, because now we know what it means, and uh, I'm grateful for his ministry. We love you, Jesus, and would you, by your Holy Spirit, hide me behind the cross of Jesus so that you might be seen to be the star of today and the teacher we all need, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen. amen. So, you know, when you're on a mission, have you ever been, like, on a mission, like you, not necessarily even a mission trip, but a mission, like you're on a mission. And you know the incredible energy and focus that comes when you're on a mission, right? You get, you're looking forward to something and you map out all the steps, you do it. So uh, I was in uh, this movement in my neighborhood, Castle Hills, called God of the City in 2008 and nine. You can see it on your note sheet. I even put every word down you will ever need. So you can follow me along and I'll be referring to it. You can take notes if you want to, but I've tried to cram it all in there. That's why it's 10.5 type. For all of you over 50 like me, I'm so sorry. I ask your desperate forgiveness for the smallness of the type. So this God of the City movement was put on the hearts of young moms in our neighborhood. They were in their early 30s, and it was inviting all the evangelical churches in North Texas <laughs> and inviting them to Pizza Hut Park in May 2009. We rented out Pizza Hut Park in Frisco. Uh, and um, we had 5,000 people show up. The stadium holds 15,000, so the girls were a little discouraged. But you know what? We had an incredible run of energy for that thing. I had prayer meetings in my house for an entire year on Tuesday mornings at 6 and Wednesday mornings at 6, so much so that the girls dubbed my house the house of prayer because we were praying and just trusting the Lord for it. But incredible energy around that. And then the satisfaction that comes when the mission is done. This happened to me also uh, helping a friend of mine start what's called the Freedom Climb. This was way, way back in 20. 10. So as soon as God of the City was over, God gave me another mission. I partner up with my friend Kathy Anderson in San Diego and start what's called the Freedom Climb. Back then, it's now called the Freedom Challenge, still going on. And uh, it is to take ordinary women like you and like me and have them train and climb mountains for the sake of those who have no voice, for women who, and children and men who have been um, 
uh, human tra in human trafficking, trapped in human trafficking. So all the money that's raised from it goes to Operation Mobilization and their rescue and rehabilitation efforts for human trafficking. So I climbed Mount Kilimanjaro when I was 56. I never had climbed a mountain before, 19,340 feet without any oxygen. <laughs> and then I did Everest Base Camp, and then I did uh, four 14, 14ers in Colorado, all in this effort. Amazing energy, right? Like, do I look like the kind of body that can climb mountains? Heavens, maybe back then I was a little bit more than I am now. But God gave incredible vision and energy. Kathy uh, developed uh, um, cancer, and so she passed away in 2014. I was able to do part of her service, and, um, but the Freedom Climb has now become the Freedom Challenge, and it's still going on, and there's a scholarship in Kathy's name. And then my dissertation, you get seven years to do it, I finished it in 6.9 <laughs> years. <laughs> um, incredible desire to finish what was a lifetime goal for me. And I wanted to have my terminal degree, and now I know why they call it terminal because you die in the process of doing it, right? So um, God gives you uh, energy, supernatural energy, when he gives you a mission. And he gives you incredible focus to finish that mission. And at the end of that mission is almost always two things, incredible satisfaction and thanksgiving. And then incredible anticipation for the next mission. Because if you're a woman on a mission, you're going to be a woman on another mission. That's what I know about Jesus. We never go out of the Lord's service, ever. We may not climb mountains, but we're always on a mission. God sends us on a mission. And that's great because we're going to talk about Jesus on a mission. And him actually starting the mission, and then we're going to see the completion of his mission. And then we're going to ask the question, how is Jesus through you still on mission today? That's where we're going to end. So let's uh, go to the what. You see on your, your note sheet, it says introduction. I just finished that. Now you're on to the what. So we're studying Isaiah at Bent Tree, and I'm teaching over there with my friend Amy Cedrone. So we're doing a year-long study in Isaiah, and we're stuck in all the judgment passages. So the women are like, Said, rescue us, oh God, from the judgment, right? We're going down deep. So um, I, I'm trying to help them through it. We're there, there, nowing, nowing, all the women, because they're just so discouraged about all the judgment. It's hard to read. Um, but we've talked, them, talk, talked to them about near fulfillment and far fulfillment. So um, when Isaiah's writing this, there was always a way that what he was saying was going to happen in real time for Israel or Judah. But there was always a far fulfillment that's going to happen sometime later. Some of the things were fulfilled already in history. What text we're going to look at today is not going to be even fulfilled in our lifetime that we know. It might even be beyond because it's going to be after Jesus comes the second time. And we don't know when that is. So we're still looking forward to it. So let me read it to you. The near fulfillment of Isaiah 61 is associated with the return of God's people from geographical exile, chapters 40 to 55. The far fulfillment of Isaiah 61 reaches into the future to the glorious earthly kingdom of the reigning Messiah and his redeemed people serving as priests to the nation. So we're on mission even in the future. All right, so let's, there's four parts of the outline. Let me give you the big overview and then we'll dig in. 
Uh, number one is the Messiah serves, and that's the, basically the first three verses. And then number two is the Messiah's restored people serve. So he serves and we serve, right? And then turn it over. And then we have verses eight and nine, the Messiah speaks. So he actually pipes up and says something. And then we see in verses 10 and 11, his restored people speak. So he serves, we serve, he speaks, we speak. Everybody got it? All right, so turn it back over. Let's dig in. All right, the great thing is that I don't have to interpret Isaiah 61 because Jesus already preached this sermon. So remember back in Luke chapter 4, Jesus is going into the synagogue at the beginning of his ministry, and he goes in, and he is the preacher of the day, which was not uncommon. A rabbi comes walking in, so you go, well, give him the scroll. And if you ever grew up in a church where there was a lectionary, where there was an Old Testament, New Testament reading, it was already prescribed, that's kind of like a synagogue. So they would pull out the Isaiah scroll, and it just happened on that day when Jesus walked in. Isn't that interesting that they pull out the scroll and it just happens as the attendant unrolls it for him, he points to the place where he's supposed to read. And it just so happens. It's Isaiah 61. Come on. Right? There's no coincidences. And here's what it says. Under A, it's talking about Jesus' first coming, the first advent. The spirit of the Lord. Jesus is reading. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners. Verse 2, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then the Bible says, he rolls back up the scroll, and he puts it away, and he sits down. He never finishes all the way to the end of verse 3. We'll get to that in a minute. You see when he says the year of the Lord's favor, this is referring to the year of Jubilee. Every 49th to 50 years, God would push an Israel reset button and everybody would have to give land back to their original owners. Debts were canceled. Slaves were freed. It was kind of a restore on the economic vitality of the nation. If you had a lot of money, you weren't looking forward to this. If you had hardly any money and land, you were really looking forward to it, right? So I'm sure there was some wailing and crying, and there was also joy, but it was a leveling. It was a leveling. So no one got too rich, no one got too poor, and uh, things were rectified. It's a beautiful thing. So Jesus is saying, in my first coming, this is being fulfilled. This brokenheartedness, this release of the captives, I'm bringing that now. He basically is identifying with the Messiah. And here's what they couldn't see in the Old Testament. The Messiah is a king who conquers. That's what they saw. They didn't see this Messiah who was a servant. Right? So when Jesus says, I'm coming to proclaim good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness to the prisoners... They didn't see that part of what he came to do. This is his first advent, to come and bring salvation, to bring a rescue to people. They only saw the Messiah of the second advent, which we'll get to next, which is the one who comes to conquer, the one who comes to set everything right finally, the one who comes to conquer all of Israel's enemies. That's what they saw. So they were so bum-fuzzled about Jesus on earth, 
like he's claiming here to be the Messiah of Isaiah 61, but he stops right short of talking about the second advent. So let's drop down there. Here's the Luke passage right in there, Luke 4, 16 to 21. I put that in there for you. And then he ends, look at the last line of that little section is uh, verse 20. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. They could not believe what he just read and said what he said. (laughs) And he began saying to them, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. The Messiah has come, different than you expected focusing on the needs of people to rescue them, bringing salvation and rescue to the world. So that makes us think, what did he not say? Why did he stop there? So look at number two, the second advent mission. So the first advent mission was to come and bring salvation and rescue and freedom and relief to people through his death, burial, and resurrection. That's what his mission was as the servant. His second advent is going to come, look at the second part of two, and all the way, three is a complicated verse, so we're going to look at it. So he continues, and proclaim, this is how it goes on, this is the part that Jesus didn't read, and proclaim, so Proclaim is borrowed as a verb from the other part where he just stopped. And proclaim the day of vengeance of our God. Because Jesus' first mission, his first advent, wasn't to bring this part. But he will bring this part. Do you see what I'm saying? So Jesus stops right in the middle. I'm sure the reading went on, but he stopped. It's so important to pay attention to the details of Scripture. Because in his, what he doesn't say is almost as important as what he just said. And now it's talking about his second advent, when he comes again as the conquering king. This is the part they saw in the Old Testament. This is why the women at Bentry are like seesawing about all this judgment, because he's coming as a conquering king, because sin is, has to be dealt with. And because Israel and Judah back in Isaiah's day were, were sinful themselves, racked with idolatry and sin. So now he's talking about the time when Messiah will come. So I have a note here, the second coming of Messiah to overcome the Antichrist, the nations at war against him. This is the prophecy that we like to look at in Revelation. Right? We're still trying to figure out the day and the time, aren't we? Right? You look at Israel, you're like, oh, it's going to happen now. It's going to happen now. Christians, wake up. All right, everybody's been saying that since Israel moved into that spot. We don't know. I'm grateful we don't know because we have to trust him. We have to live ready, not get ready. It's so, so important. So he says, I proclaim the day of vengeance of our God, 
And then he moves into comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion and to bestow on them a crown of beauty uh, instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. Do you realize that he stops talking about all the things they were looking forward to in the Messiah? He just says it in a phrase. I'm going to proclaim the day of vengeance of our God. Boom, done, period. I'm going to conquer. And then he turns his attention to his own people. And he says, I'm going to comfort those who mourn. I'm going to provide for those. Like, his heart is for you and me, for his own people. Most of what he's talking about in the second advent is how he's going to tend to his own people in this time of great war and destruction, Armageddon and all that kind of stuff. His eye is never off the ball of your life and mine, of our lives as his people. Notice the verbs, he's going to comfort, provide, and bestow. And then look at all the insteads. The insteads show you that there's a reversal. So he's going to take that crown He's going to give a crown of beauty instead of the ashes that they are wearing. He's going to give the oil of joy instead of mourning. So he's going to replace mourning with joy. And he's going to, instead of despair, that spirit of despair that drags people down, he's going to give a garment of praise, like wrapped in praise, covered in praise, wearing praise. Not just the three songs at the beginning of a church service praise, but like wearing it praise, right? So it, as just a Bible student, I'm looking at this verse, at these verses, and I'm thinking, wow. We spend so much time fretting and thinking over the second advent of Jesus and all the stuff that's going to happen, and he says it in six words, and he moves on. To me, that symbolizes his absolute power and certainty and his absolute love for his own. So the conquering Messiah, proclaiming the day of the vengeance of our God, is also the one who serves his people with love, tends to the brokenhearted, gets on his sewing machine and gets out the simplicity pattern for the garment of praise and sews it up for you because he loves you. In the middle of whacking all the godless nations, he's taking care. Do you you get that? Do you see it in scripture? The love, the grace, the attentiveness of your God. And then what do we do? We reverse it. We minimize the love of God. Yeah, 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 I know he loves me. But when the last end times come, oh my gosh, I'm going to go to the sixth conference this year on Revelation because I want to (laughs) know. We take a hard left turn into that and forget all of the love, the daily tending love. He's still doing it. Because that's his mission. He started it in the first advent. He keeps doing it in the second advent. He doesn't ever stop loving. That deserves a hallelujah somewhere. Can we do a little hallelujah? Are you a hallelujah group? Because I'm thinking we need that right there. All right. 
So let's look at how the restored people of the Messiah serve. So he's serving us in his first and second advent, and now the Messiah's people serve him. This is the last part of verse 3 into 7. Let me read it. Notice the pronoun change. It's they. Instead of I'm going to bestow on them, so now it's they will be called. So these people who have had these reversals, they've been given joy. They've been given a garment of praise. They've, they've, been, they've been reversed. Now they're, they're taken care of. They're loved. And now they go into action. God takes care of them. Messiah takes care of them, empowers them, heals them, restores them. And then they in turn restore. They're the ones who are doing this. They will be called the oaks of righteousness. If you go to Genesis chapter 12, verse 6, the oak of righteousness is where Abraham met the Lord. So follow that on your own and read Genesis chapter 12, verse 6. You'll, you'll love that. A planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild ancient ruins and restore places long devastated. God is doing it, but he's doing it through his restored people. Restore pe restored people restore things. God doesn't just do it all. He does it all by empowering his restored people. You and me, we're still on mission. It's the end times. We're not going to like kick back on the spiritual like Chase Lounge. And go, man, I'm, I got my, I want, I'm waiting for my crowns over here on the patio with my margarita. <laughs> Whenever you're ready, Jesus. And not going to be like that. We're empowered. We've been restored to restore. Look at this. He said they will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. If you're an architect, you're going to be architecting in the future. If, 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 if Jesus doesn't come back in our lifetime and this is for your kids or your kids' kids or something like that, all of your human qualifications, my doctorate in this time probably could be useful. That was supposed to be funny. Could you just laugh there for a minute? See... God, it's not like all your human stuff's going to be wiped out. You're going to be useful. And so cities will be rebuilt. Think of the rebuilding that's going to have to happen in Israel and Gaza. You know what? I bet God's people are there. There are God's people in Gaza. There are God's people in Israel. And restored people restore things. We just do. And then notice it changes to your. So as a Bible student, you got to watch those pronoun changes because they're going to, this is almost like the Messiah is bragging on his restored people and what they're doing. He goes, strangers will shepherd your flocks. Foreigners will work your fields and vineyards and you will be called priests of the Lord. A priest represents God to man and man to God. And you will be named ministers of our God, servants of our God. You will feed on the wealth of nations, and in their riches you will boast. All it's saying is those nations that are coming against, in the book of Isaiah, Israel and Judah, one day those nations will gladly serve with Israel. 
Israel be the head, not the tail, but not to conquer and lord it over other nations, but to serve with other nations, except they'll be the leaders. They'll be the priests. They'll be restored to a priestly ministry, which is what they should have been doing all along. Being a place where people could see God in them and they could bring people to him. That's what they were designed to be. They will be restored to that. They will be serving, and they will have a priestly ministry, the nation of Israel. And all the other nations will be, hey, can I, can I like plow your field for you? Because I know you're busy in priestly ways over there. So that's what's going to happen in the future. We're all, it's all going to be working together. Skip the United Nations. You're not going to need that because it's all going to be restored in a way of service. And Israel will be at the head of this. God's people will be at the head of this. Verse 7, instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion. This is an echo of what he just said earlier that Jesus said about his first. This is him taking care again. Instead of your shame, you'll receive a double portion. Instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. And so you will inherit a double portion in your land. And everlasting joy will be yours. Woohoo! Gosh, this is a beautiful picture. As you're restored by the servant Messiah, the servant Messiah uses you who are restored to restore others, and all the meantime, he takes care of you. It's so beautiful. Notice not CEOs or internet moguls or celebrities or politicians do any of this. Rather, the poor, the brokenhearted, the former captive, and the incarcerated, and the mourners will repair the ruined cities and the devastations of many generations. It's the people who have been broken and down for the count that Jesus brings back to life. They are the ones who do this work. So if you have ever felt like that, I felt like that. This is hopeful to me. In my despair, Jesus is going to bring me through and I will be useful and productive and fruitful and everlasting joy will be on my head. And now the Messiah speaks. Verses 8 and 9, For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. In my faithfulness, I will reward my people and make an everlasting covenant with them. Sue does a great job in your lesson talking about the rewards and taking you into the New Testament. This is where I'm sure she's getting this concept. Their descendants will be known among the nations and their offspring. So now, remember the Abrahamic covenant, you will have children as much as the, you know, the stars in the sky and the sand and the sea. People are still having babies. How do they have time to have babies during Armageddon and during the restructuring of cities? But, you know, y'all, babies are still happening. Kids ministry is going to be forever. Let me just say, if you're in kids ministry, dude, we're always going to have kids. Thank you, Jesus. There's always a next generation. And their offspring among the peoples, all who see them will acknowledge that they are a people the Lord has blessed. That's what he's, all the nations someday are going to look at God's people and go, now those people? I see Jesus in those people. We will wear Jesus as evidently as people have worn the mark of the beast. 
And then his restored people speak. They get the last word. Jesus doesn't have the last word. We have the last word. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me, pronoun change, in a robe of his righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest, he wore a turban. And as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. This is nothing short of wedding joy. When it says everlasting joy, it's the joy you felt on your wedding day. I don't think your husband probably wore a turban, but maybe he did. But back in this day, they wore a turban. So now we're not just the bride of Christ, as we see in the New Testament. In this, we're being described as the bride and the bridegroom. Because what it's saying is this idea of being adorned for a wedding and the prospect of seeing your beloved and being with your beloved. So this is what the redeemed people are so happy about because they're with their beloved. For as the soil makes the sprout come up and a garden, this could be a hint to the restored Eden, that maybe Eden is brought back as a garden. But there's a freedom to go in that garden. Remember it was walled off after sin. Sin is all taken care of. And so maybe that tree of life is just in the middle of the garden. We can go visit it and look at it. Be around it. Can you imagine grabbing your favorite book and sitting under the tree of life with your margarita? I mean, with your... It's probably a virgin margarita, sorry, when you get there, but... So the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. Gee. You know, if it doesn't happen while we're still human beings alive on earth... When you die in the Lord, the New Testament tells us we go to be with him, absent from the body, present with the Lord. And what we think will happen from Revelation is that we will come back with Jesus in that second advent. So all the people who are alive in God's people at that time, and we are coming back as redeemed and glorified saints to live on the earth, I think we get to be with and still serve and do on what will become a renewed planet. So what? What does it mean? David Jeremiah lists several reasons why understanding prophecy is so important for us. Here's four. He has a long list. I just put four. Prophecy protects us from deception. Prophecy prepares us to live Prophecy propels us to be holy. And prophecy is a prize. They said there's a blessing that you get from even reading Revelation. Just read it. You got a blessing. You ever say, I want God to bless me? Read Revelation. Because it says when you read it, you get a blessing. I don't know what that blessing is. Maybe the ability to make it through Revelation. I don't know. But you get a blessing. There's a blessing that comes with it. So read it. Now what? What do we do with this? And I want to take you to 2 Peter 3, 11 through 18. Read that later. It's so, so good. Prophecy always has ethical outworkings. In other words, prophecy isn't for your mental self to go crazy about the future. It's meant to say to you, what kind of woman are you today? That's what prophecy does. It has ethical outcomes. 
ethical meaning, it says something about how I live my life. It's not about, oh, I can't wait to get out of here. That's not what prophecy is about. Prophecy is like, how are you living today, Jojo? Dr. Jojo. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? It's about how we live today. It has ethical considerations. So here's exactly from 2 Peter, the list I pulled out. It should cause us to live holy and godly lives. It should help us to look forward. As I said, don't get ready, live ready. We're not getting ready for Jesus to come back. We're living ready. That's what prophecy helps us to do. We abide in Christ. We remain in him. We focus on our identity in Christ and we serve other people. We be on guard against error and we grow. 2 Peter 3, 18, in the grace and knowledge of your Lord and Savior. So my question is this, and I'm going to give you a few minutes before I close to talk at your tables. If Jesus was on mission, and if you get supernatural energy and focus from being on a mission, and supernatural satisfaction when you finish a mission, then my question is, how is Jesus on a mission through you currently? So take a few minutes to discuss that at your tables, and I'll come back and close us. All right. I need to close our time, so um, I'll be back next week. So I'll be finishing up. So um, if you have any questions and, and stuff like that, um, Sissy has my email. You can email me, and uh, we'd love to dialogue with you. The challenge of starting a message with the highlights of my life, those missions I talked about, with the exception of a dissertation, none of them came to me as a mission. They each came to me as a simple opportunity that came from a conversation with a friend. God didn't break the heavens and come down with a band of angels and deliver me a message as I'm sending you on a mission. The middle of what Jesus says in Luke 4, it says, and he has sent me. I think the key to living on a mission is to be ready to be sent. And you never know where it's going to lead. That's the beautiful thing. You could say yes to making cookies for this thing that have no sugar and no taste. <laughs> and that could lead you to something you can't even imagine. God can take a cookie and turn it into a mission. So don't cancel yourself out. Oh, I don't really do all those big things. I, don't, I live a humble life. You can be a cookie, can't you? Like the, the, they never come as a mission. They come as an opportunity between friends who are talking on the phone. And God, the Holy Spirit, blows his fresh breath on that thing, and somebody gets a mission. Just be open to being sent. And even pray, Jesus, send me somewhere to something, to someone. Just send me. I'm ready. Don't get ready. Live ready so that he can send you with that little cookie in your hand to the next thing. Dear Jesus, thank you for loving us so much and for never stopping loving us. You love us all the way to the end and into eternity. You always have your eye on your people. 
You're always taking care of the things that are broken. You're always restoring people so that restored people can restore other people and other things. Use this message, Lord, in any way that you want to encourage us. That you have opportunities for us. And those opportunities just might be a mission. If we live ready and available for you to send us. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.